All right, how are we this morning? You, lo- you lost it right there. You lost it. Absolutely. All right, good try. We'll try again next time. All right, well, good morning to you all. I'm glad to see you guys here this morning. And, and as you can tell by our video up there, um, we are in a new series right now that we just started last week in the book of Daniel. Um, so if you've got your Bibles, go actually go ahead and take those out. We're going to spend a lot of time in Daniel 2 this morning. And... Um, and so if you remember last week, kind of where we left off is we introduced the story of Daniel and his friends. And uh, Daniel and his friends are in Babylon. They're exiled from, from their culture, and they're moved into Babylon. They were, they were sent to Babylon. And, um, and, and Daniel and his friends went through uh, this time where they were really stripped down of everything that made them who they were. And if you remember last week, we kind of compared that to our Christian culture where we are in America today, how we, we really have some ways that God wants us to live our life, and then we've got another way that culture says that, that we should live our lives, and sometimes those things don't go together. And uh, so, so we kind of saw through Daniel's story how we can kind of relate with him and, and some of the issues that they faced while they were in Babylon. And, um, and as we finished last week, we, we, we kicked off with Daniel, and, and they ended, things ended up going really, really well for them while they were there. Uh, when it was all said and done at the end of chapter one, God was really blessing what they were doing. Uh, they saw a lot of success in, in what they were doing. God was blessing. He was moving in their lives. And, um, and as we go into to chapter two today, we're going to start to see the story start to shift just a little bit for Daniel and his friends. And where, where things were going really, really well for Daniel and his friends at the end of chapter one, things are about to be much, much different when you get to chapter two. And um, so, so fast forward to chapter two here, and, and, and I was reading through this, this book this week. I'm reading through Daniel 2 over and over and over again, and, and I just began to think about, really started to think about what trials, what suffering, and what, what persecution does in the life of us as Christians. What, what, what do trials do to us? What, what do those do to our faith? What does suffering do to our faith? And so I really started to think about this because I think for us as Christians, one of the biggest markers where we can really dig underneath the roots and see our faith for what it is, is whenever suffering, trials, or persecutions walk into our life. All right, so whenever, whenever those, those times come into your life when things aren't necessarily going according to your plan anymore, uh, there, there's moments that come into your life that you, you weren't hoping for, and, and things begin to change where you have your perfect plan and then, and then something else just walks right into your life. And I think those are the moments where we can really see uh, our faith for what it is. Because I think most of you would probably agree with me. It's easy for us to love God and to play church whenever every single thing in our world is going well for us. Everything in our world is going well for us. The money is coming in okay. Maybe we got promoted at work. Everybody's healthy. Everybody's doing okay. There's no, no real issues. There's no opposition in our lives. So everything in our world's going great, and it's easy to put a facade on that, that we love God like crazy whenever those things happen. It's easy to play games whenever those things are happening. But I think when, when we can dig underneath all of that, whenever those things aren't going as well for us anymore, whenever things uh, maybe fall apart just a little bit and everything in our world is kind of crumbling down, I think that's where we can tell uh, if we say, if we believe what we say we believe. So I think you can, you can see your faith for what it is whenever the rubber meets the road and all of a sudden things aren't going as well for you any longer. And, and I talk about trials and persecution and suffering in a unique time in history where right now at this moment we have brothers and sisters, you and I, across the world who, who are being killed, being persecuted every single day just for believing, believing in this book. 
That's the kind of world we're living in. And so for us, maybe, maybe we're not facing uh, the, the suffering of walking through the door this morning and worrying about somebody hiding behind our cars to kill us. Maybe that's not where we're at right now. But, but there are things that you and I will go through in our culture. Suffering, trials, and persecution will happen in our culture. And so, so I think we can learn today from Daniel what our life ought to look like in response to those moments in our life. And see, th- this, is, this is kind of what happened to me about, about two and a half years ago. It walked into my life. So um, two and a half years ago, I'll kind of bring you into my world. My wife and I have been married for about a year and a half right now. Uh, May would have been... I'm sorry, not May. Uh, a year and a half, we'll go with that. So year and a half, and she's in here too. I didn't mess that up in the first one, so I'm probably in trouble when I get home. I, we have been married for a year and a half. That's an absolute. Um, so anyways, <laughs> love you, honey. Um, so, so we've been married for a year and a half, and, but about two and a half years ago, um, we would have been together for about seven months total at that point in time. And, and we were head over heels in love with one another, absolutely nuts about each other. It, it was the kind of head over heels in love that, that when you look back at your life at that point in time, you're almost somewhat embarrassed about how you acted around one another. Your friends didn't want to hang out with you quite as often anymore because you always had to be with that other person. It's kind of like trying to pull two really thick magnets apart, and you, you, you pull, your friends are trying to pull you away, and then you just come slamming back together. Nothing can separate you, and that's kind of how we were, man. When we were together, we were going to be holding hands. We're going to have my arm around her. We're going to be uh, hugging each other. We're just going to be next to each other all of the time. And, and we were at that moment in our marriage where we're starting to, or uh, our relationship at this point, we were just dating. We're at that moment where, uh, where we're really starting to talk about the idea of marriage. And so her and I had been talking over the past couple of months about what that was going to look like for us. I'm beginning to think about the big questions of uh, where do I get the ring from? When am I going to talk to her dad? I'm kind of getting ready for, for that season of life. And um, while all of that was going on, Shelby and I are crazy, crazy in love with one another. Uh, one, of, one of the biggest moments, one of the darkest seasons, one of the toughest roads that I think either of us has ever walked down, walked right into the front door of our life, and we never saw it coming. We had no idea it was coming. And, um, and some of you guys who know me well, you might know this about Shelby, a lot of you probably don't, but my wife was diagnosed with cancer in her neck about two, two and a half years ago. May would have been two years um, and so th- this was that moment that, that really kind of set our world upside down because we're, we're a young couple. We seem like we have a lot of things going for us. And then, and then we find out that, that she got diagnosed with this disease. And I'm going to share this story with you guys. And, it, and it's one that I honestly don't share often because I don't want that to be how people look at us. I don't want us to be defined by some, some sort of disease or sickness. I want us to just love us for who, who we are. And if you don't, you don't, if you do, you know, that's awesome. That's who we want to, we don't want to be the, the cancer type of people. We just want to be who we are. And so I don't share this story very often, but this is that story. This was a moment in our life that I, that I believe God allowed to come right into our life. God allowed that to happen to us. And, and, and through what happened, I believe that God will be extremely glorified through her situation. I believe God will be made much of in her life and in our marriage because of what we walk through. And this is one of those things that I think all of us in the room this morning can learn from, even if you're not going down a road quite like that right now. So Shelby was diagnosed with cancer in her thyroid, which is about right there in your neck, and then it kind of spread into the side of her neck. And so, um, so she begins the whole process of operations and procedures and then goes through radiation treatments to scans and radiation treatments to scans, on and on. And those lasted, they just ended for her about a couple of months ago, honestly. So she's been going through this stuff for a long time. And, um, 
And, and this was that big moment for us. This, this was that big moment in our life where, where me and Shelby were really faced with a decision. We, we had the option whenever we found out this news that we could go one of two ways. Either we were going to walk down the road where, where we, we came to God, we relied on God, we pressed into God even more, or we were going to go down the other road that says, you know, we're just going to listen to the world for answers. We're going to, we're going to kind of, we're, we're confused. We don't know what to do. We're going through this time of trial and suffering in, in our marriage. And, and so we're going to walk down a different road and listen to what the world would have to say to us. And, and we could have easily started to ask the questions, where the heck did God go? Did God turn his back on us where we were? Did, did God turn around and just not see, and then we wake up one day and boom, Shelby's sick. We, we could have sat there and we could have asked, how did God allow this to happen to us? I could have played the card. God, I'm trying to work in your ministry. I'm trying to work for your church. How could you let this happen to us? And that could have been the road that we walked down. And that could have been the things that we asked but I think whenever I was reading Daniel 2 this week, this, this, this really hit home with me due to what the, the situations and the roads that we've walked down. Because Daniel, in Daniel chapter 2, is, is introduced to a brand new situation in Babylon that where things were going well at the end of chapter 1, they weren't going to be going that way much longer. All right, so if you've got your Bibles, go ahead, go ahead and pick it up. I mean, Daniel 2, we're going to read through verse 1 and 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled. And his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. All right. So, so what's going on here in this story? Let me bring you guys into the story just a little bit. So in the opening part of chapter 2, we learn about King Nebuchadnezzar. He's one of the most powerful men in the world, uh, ruling and reigning over Babylon. And that's where Daniel and, and his guys are living. And it says King Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and, and these dreams really seemed to bother him. The text tells us that they, they troubled his spirit. So, so he had some issues of what was going on in his dreams, and they bothered him so much that, that he told all of these different wise men throughout Babylon to come to him, and he was going to have these wise men interpret to him the meaning behind the dream that he had. All right, so the guys show up to King Nebuchadnezzar, and they're, they're starting to talk to him, and they're thinking logically, if you are wanting us to interpret your dream, if you want us to tell you the meaning of the dream, we have to know exactly what you dreamt to begin with. We have to know what it was that you had going on in your, in your sleep so we can tell you the meaning behind it. And listen to what Nebuchadnezzar says back to him in verse 5 and 6. The king answered and said to the, the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn from limb to limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. Now, how badly do I feel for these guys as I'm reading this story this week? Not only does King Nebuchadnezzar say, hey, come in, and I want you to interpret this dream for me, but he also says, you have to figure out what the heck I dreamed to begin with. You've got to figure out what was going on in here and then interpret it to me. So th this is what these dudes are, are, are faced with right now. And, and so these guys go back to the king, and they say, look, we do not know what you dream. We, we don't know. And, and not only can we not figure out what you dreamt, but obviously we're not going to know the interpretation of your dream. And so finally, in verse 11, the men respond with this. Verse 11, the Bible says, 
These are the the men talking back to Nebuchadnezzar. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the kings except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. So so these men come back to King Nebuchadnezzar, and ultimately they tell him they have no idea what his dream is about and especially how to interpret it. And, And apparently this did not sit well with King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, the story continues on by telling us that King Nebuchadnezzar go- goes out and orders all of the wise men of Babylon to be killed. So that whole deal that he was talking about being torn from limb to limb, well, that's now a reality for all of these guys. It's, they're about to kill all of these dudes, and that, that's kind of where they're at. So all the enchanters, the sorcerers, the magicians, the Chaldeans, all of these guys were going to be killed right away. And this is where trouble starts to come in for Daniel and his friends while they're in Babylon. See, because Daniel and his friends were included in the count of the wise men of Babylon. They, they, they would have been a part of that crew that was about to get torn from limb to limb. And, and, and so with all of these men about to be killed, including themselves, Daniel's, they're just hanging out doing their thing because things are going really well for them in Babylon. And now they've got guys coming to their door to take them out and kill them. And so, so Daniel, in verse 16, he requests to speak with the king. He goes and he says, I want to speak with with King Nebuchadnezzar, and he does something that, that is so spectacular. Daniel does something so spectacular that, that shows not how awesome and wise that Daniel is, but it shows just how much that Daniel believed his God is. Daniel believed his God to be awesome and willing and able to, to, to reveal these things. So Daniel goes in and he tells King Nebuchadnezzar, I'll step up and interpret the dream. I'll do it. Daniel is, is fully aware that everyone else, all, this other, all these other wise men in Babylon have just told the king, we cannot interpret your dream. So you've got some of the smartest guys in, in, in all of this place saying, hey, we, we cannot interpret it for you. Daniel's just like the rest of these guys. He has absolutely no clue what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was. He didn't have like a sidebar conversation with Nebuchadnezzar saying, hey, would you tell me your dream so I can make these guys look like clowns? Awesome. Now, that wasn't how it went. He, he was just like everyone else. And I think this is one of those t- stories in the Bible where, where we can step up and we can applaud Daniel for his great courage and his, uh, you know, he stepped up and he was a man and he, he went out there and did it. But, uh, but I think we have to see that Daniel is just like everyone else who all of them had just said, hey, we cannot interpret this dream but he stepped in and do it. He stepped in to say, you know what, I'll, I'll do this. And Daniel's faced with a, with a legitimate trial here that either he can interpret the king's dream correctly or ultimately he's going to be killed right along with everyone else. He, he can either go to the king and give him the right answers that he wants to hear or ultimately he's going to have his head chopped off just like these other guys. And this is that first real moment in Babylon where Daniel and his friends are faced with a difficult situation where, where, where death is imminent and is facing them where they are in Babylon. They don't know anywhere to go. They cannot get away from it. He's either going to interpret the dream or he's going to be dead. And I think this can bring me and you to a point in his story to look at ourselves and begin to ask ourselves, where is that place that you run to whenever trials or suffering enter your life? Where is the place you run to when all of life seems like it's crumbling around your feet and you don't have anywhere to go? You can't pick up the pieces. You're not smart enough. You're not wise enough. You don't have enough strength to pick the pieces back up and put them together again. Where's the place that you run to whenever life looks like that? Because I think we can learn from Daniel because he's faced with the, with the very same question here. 
And the first thing I want us to see from his story is that Daniel knew where his help came from. Daniel knew where his help came from. So Daniel agrees to interpret the dream, but look at what he does first before he does anything else. Look at verse 17 and 18. It says, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So, so where is the first place that Daniel goes to after he's faced with the biggest moment of trial in his time in Babylon? Where is that place that he goes whenever he knows that death is coming? He throws himself. He runs. He throws himself at the mercies of God. He goes and he prays and he asks God for wisdom and help. He does not run to himself, but rather he runs to God who he knows is able to give him the answers. And the funny thing is, we know from chapter 1 that Daniel is considered to be one of the smartest men in all of Babylon. If all these other dudes are smart, Daniel's probably a step above all of them. That's who he is. But Daniel gets to that place and recognizes in his life that he is not smart enough to figure out the answers on his own. He understands that though he has all of this wisdom, he's such a smart man, he's got, he's got all of this intellect, he understands that all of that falls short in comparison to what he needs. Ultimately, Daniel realizes that all of his intellect, all of his wisdom, or everything going on up here was not from himself, but rather it was from God. Daniel did not read enough books to be smart enough to interpret dreams. He, he didn't have the interpretation guide for dummies sitting on his coffee table. He didn't have any of that. He knew he was not smart enough on his own. He said he runs to God, and he recognizes the only hope that he's going to have is ultimately from him. And so, so again, I'll ask you, where, where do you go to when things aren't going your way? Where, where do you run to and recognize where, where your help comes from when life is, is out of control for you? And see, because if you're a guy like me, you ultimately, whenever things hit the fan like that, you ultimately try to take everything into your own hands. You try, to, you try to pick yourself up, back off the ground, pull yourself together, be a strong man and make all this stuff happen and figure it out on your own. And most of the women are probably like, yes, you do, because you're a man. And I live with one, and he does the same thing. He, he's that way. But I think all of us have a natural bent towards that tendency from, at time to time, is that, that we just rely on ourselves far too often, and we will not look to God for help, because that's, that's kind of the person that I am deep down. And maybe you're not one of those people that's walking through a season of life like this right now. Maybe, maybe you're not that person who's walking through a difficult time of, of trials or suffering in your life. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you've never really been down that road and had anything really bad kind of enter your life. But I've, I've got news for you. If, you're, if you have not been through a time like that in your life, or if you're not going through one right now, it's coming. It's coming. There will be a day for you when things are not going as well as they are right now. There will be a time when things going on in your world are out of control for you to handle. There are days where things aren't going to be good like they might be at this very moment. So, so, so Daniel, in that moment where things are spiraling out of control in his world, he looks to God for help. Notice that Daniel doesn't even go to his friends for help. The only thing he enlists his friends to do is to pray with him. He doesn't go kind of lay on the couch and have a Dr. Phil session with his friends on seeking some good advice. The very, very first place that Daniel runs to is to God's mercy. The first place Daniel runs to is God's mercy. See, Shelby and I were, were in the same, same dilemma when we found out about her situation. I'll, I'll never forget the night that I found out about Shelby being sick. 
I was at work. I remember this vividly. I'm at work and I'm in my office and, uh, and she had surgery over the weekend and we knew that we were going to be getting a call from the doctor on Monday to let us know what it was. And, but they weren't really expecting this. They, this wasn't really on our radar. We didn't think this was going to be an outcome. And so we're not too worried about it at all. We're just kind of going about our lives. I'm at work. She's at home doing her thing and I'm doing mine. And, and so she calls me and she said, hey, hey, Zach, so I just got off the phone with the doctor. I'm like, okay, great. What happened? All right, so I talked to the doctor. He said, I've got cancer in my thyroid. They're going to operate on Friday. And I just kind of stopped. Kind of stopped where I was because, because what had just happened was the girl that I am absolutely madly in love with, the girl I want to give my life to, the girl I want to spend my entire life with has just gotten a call that she has, has cancer in her neck and they're operating on Friday. And I'm just walking through my life, not expecting any of this, and then I get that phone call. And so I'm a guy, and if you know me well, I don't cry a lot. I probably not, could not point to the last time I cried about much of anything. But that moment where she told me what was going on, I immediately came to tears right away. I just started crying. And this was kind of that moment in our life for her and I. We ultimately had to decide where we were going to go for help. Were we going to be like Daniel and run and throw ourselves at the fountain of God's mercy and seek his help, seek his wisdom, and ask him for strength beyond what I am capable of producing? Or are we going to look to ourselves? This was that moment for us where, where things weren't going well anymore. We've got to figure some things out together. And man, we, we had to decide. Now, are, are, are we going to trust God? Are we going to give ourselves fully to God? Are we going to let him own the situation? Are we, are we going to let him come into the situation and move us through? Or are we going to run away and say, God, why, how did you turn your back on us? Will you turn around not watching while this happened when, when the girl I love just had this diagnosis come to her? Is that how we were going to act? We're going to walk in a way where we say, you know what, God, you are the only one that's going to bring us through this. Man, I could walk down this road, but I'm going to be miserable and suffering the whole way through. I could walk down it with God and be forever filled with strength, peace, and joy, even in the midst of the dark season in our life. I mean this in a sensitive way. I'm going to say this, but anybody that says they are tough enough to fight cancer, that's probably not the truth. Because cancer is not one of those things where you step up and fight it and, and tear it away. It's one of those things that you really, you, put, you strap the seatbelt on and you hold on for the ride because everything is out of your control. I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to operate on her. I, I, I don't know anything about radiation treatments and scans. That's not my world. I don't know anything about that. She does not know anything about that. And so this is one of those things where we had to strap in, hold on for the ride. But we had to help beyond ourselves. We had a help and a hope that was greater than us. And Shelby and I knew from day one that we had one place to run to in this time in our life. We knew that we had one choice, one choice, and it was run to God for strength. We could turn and run the other way, but, but things weren't going to go well for us if we did. And I'm not going to stand up here and act like I, I was perfect the whole way through it. I'm not going to act like I was the strongest husband in the world. And there weren't days where I was uh, tired, not to mention how she felt. She's the one physically walking through this every day, physically going down an exhausting and draining road. So, so days were hard. Nights were long. We were tired. We just ended that road a couple of months ago. But throughout the entire thing, when those thoughts began to creep into our head, we had to recognize that there was one help that we had. We had to throw ourselves down at God's mercy. 
And this is where Daniel and his friends are at in Babylon. Instead of running away and turning their back on God for allowing this situation to happen, Daniel and them stuck, they, they, they prayed, they, they pleaded with God, God, come, give us mercy. Because I want us to think about this for a minute. How glorious, how spectacular, how awesome, how, how beautiful does God look, not when his children have everything in the world handed to them on a golden platter, but how awesome does God look that even in the moments of suffering in our lives, that we can still point to him and say, he is good no matter what. He did not turn his back on me. He is walking through this with me. God was not surprised. God is here with me. How awesome does God look, not when we run from suffering, but when we embrace suffering with the help and the comfort that comes from only him. And this is where Daniel lives. Look at, look at chapter 2, 19 to 21. Daniel throws himself at God's mercy, and the Bible tells us this. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So God answers Daniel's pleas for mercy. God gives him the dream and its interpretation. God answers his, his cries for help. And what Daniel has just experienced is a, one of the most profound and magnificent attributes about our God, and that is namely that God is sovereign over everything. God is sovereign over everything. When I mean sovereign, I mean everything in this entire universe belongs to God. Nothing is outside of his control. Every single thing is submissive to him. And so in Daniel's situation, he understands that, that, that God did not turn his back. God is with me. In mine and Shelby's life, God did not turn his back, but God is with us in the midst of the suffering. Listen to what A.W. Tozer says about God's wisdom and sovereignty. He says, all God's acts are done in perfect wisdom, first for his own glory, then for the highest good of the greatest number for the longest time. And all his acts are as wise as they are, or as pure as they are wise, and as good as they are wise and pure. Not only could his acts not be better done, a better way to do them could not be imagined. A better way to do them could not be imagined. Church, this is who our God is. This is who our God is. Daniel is facing this time of trial and suffering in the story. God has him exactly where he wants him to be. And this takes me to the third point, is that you and I as followers of Jesus, we must be willing to speak. We must be willing to speak. For most of us in the room, the idea of speaking to someone or telling someone about our faith is one of the most terrifying things in the entire universe. Just terrifying. You just don't want to do it. And I've, I've met people that just like refuse to, to tell anyone. In fact, I've heard this from time to time. Well, I believe my faith is a private faith, so I keep it to myself. I don't really say anything to anybody else. I, I do my thing. I let them do their thing. I'm just kind of private. And I politely respond with, just take me to the Bible. Show me where. Just show me where that, that's the case. Be, because, church, our faith is just the opposite of a private faith. God intends his message of Christ, reconciling, bringing back the world to himself to spread over every inch of this planet. This message is not just to stay here with us, but it's to spread all across the globe. And that's why we use phrases around here like, we will not wait, because church, we refuse to be a people 
that sits in here week after week holding this most spectacular news in the universe and sit on our butts with it. There, there, there's a world outside that's dying and going to hell every single day. And we have what they need. And when we refuse to go, what does that say about us? That we will not speak up, even in the face of opposition. We, we must take that and, and take it to the world. And, and in the midst of trials and suffering, we cannot let the gospel message be hindered because of trial and suffering. In fact, one of the best ways for our message to spread through this world is not whenever we are not suffering, but it's when we are suffering. Most times suffering is somewhat of a catapult for our message to go into the world. I can't tell you how many times I personally have had the opportunity to share Jesus with people and talk about the faithfulness of God through Shelby's situation. Because most people at my, at my work at that moment and at that season in my life are thinking that, man, we're just going to be down and out about everything. We're going to be upset all the time. We're going to be frustrated and mad. That's, that's what most people would imagine our response to be. But how awesome does Jesus look when they say, man, how is Shelby doing? Are you guys okay? And I say, absolutely, we're okay. God has been so faithful. God has been so gracious to us. Even in the midst of the dark road, God has not left us, but he has us just where he wants us. How awesome does he look when that's the case? See, God can be greatly glorified. God can be extremely glorified, made much of through the sufferings of his people. Suffering does not hinder his message. It sends it forward. And this is where Daniel is in Babylon. Even though Daniel's walking through a moment of suffering, Daniel refuses to waste his time. And he is going to make much of God's name through what he is experiencing. Look at what he does uh, in, in 27 and 28. Daniel goes back to King Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that God or can show the king to the king the mystery the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. See, Daniel honors God with his words. Daniel goes back to King Nebuchadnezzar, and he doesn't go back saying, hey, I sat down and thought about it. I had a whiteboard session, and I figured out what your dream was about. Daniel goes back and says, there is a God in heaven who is able to reveal this to us, and he has shown me what your dream is. He was not afraid to speak back to King Nebuchadnezzar when he had the dream revealed. But as I was thinking about this, I, I thought through, I'm like, well, how does Daniel know that, that the interpretation that God gave him is correct? How does he know he's not going to walk in the room and, and give, give the interpretation to the king and the king not just say, no, that's not right. I'm going to chop your head off right now. Or how, how does he not know that maybe Nebuchadnezzar won't like the message that is brought to him? And, and because Nebuchadnezzar does not like it, how does, how does Daniel not know that he won't kill him right there on the spot? See, Daniel here has so much faith and trust in God that he's not afraid to go before the king and speak up. And, and for many of us, I mean, we're, we're held back by the idea that, that we are, are too inadequate. We don't have the right schooling. We are not smart enough. We haven't been a Christian long enough to tell people about our faith. We, we live under the weight of us thinking that it's all on our shoulders, all on our backs, and we're afraid to tell anyone about Jesus because we think we're far too inadequate. And we can think of a thousand different reasons why we can't share Jesus with people, but we forget the one true reason that there are people dying each and every day going to a literal place called hell apart from the message. 
And I've been down that road. I've made excuse after excuse after excuse as to why I cannot share my faith with people. But the story really brings it into perspective for me that we are to be a people who are willing to speak up. I think we can learn from Daniel not being afraid to speak to the king because he could have been wrong. He could have been wrong. He could have been killed. But instead of staying where he was, he decided to trust God and to speak up. So what is it for you that holds you back from speaking about God's grace in your life? What, what is it for you that keeps you from being overjoyed and elated to share the message of what God has done in your life? Do you have like, a, is it a fear of rejection? Is it isolation? Are you worried about what people might label you as? Do you think they'll label you as a certain type of person? I think whenever I have those thoughts that creep into my head, because I, if, I, if, I, if you're like me at all, those thoughts come. And when those thoughts come, I remember Jesus' words in Luke 12, 11, and 12. Jesus said, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And this is the kind of confidence that Daniel was walking into King Nebuchadnezzar. He, Daniel didn't walk in with a puffed up confidence that he had all of the answers. He had everything figured out, but rather Daniel was confident in who God is. See, because God can use us, God can use you, God can use me to make an incredible impact in the lives of others through you being bold and faithful. Hear this, for a God that is unstoppable. God will not be stopped. His church will not be stopped. The message will go out, and God can use you to make an incredible impact on the lives of others. This, I had a moment a few years ago that, that something like this kind of happened for me. I got a letter in the mail one day, and it was not from a credit card company or an advertiser. Um, it was actually a handwritten letter. For guys in my generation, the Postal Service is somewhat of an untapped resource for us, something we quite haven't figured out yet. And uh, so, so getting a letter in the mail was maybe a first for me in my life. And um, so I open up the letter, and I, and I see it's from my friend, a friend that I've grown up with since I was about 10 years old. His name is Tony. And, uh, and man, we, we grew up together. We, we played sports together. We also got into a lot of dark things together in our lives. We walked through a lot of the same, same dark roads together. And I open up the letter and I start to read it, and I'll just read it for you. I brought it with me this morning. This was his words to me. I am incredibly honored and happy to have had the privilege of knowing you since middle school. Most of my middle and high school memories consist of both of us enjoying life and having fun. When you first started to be what I then called a Bible thumper, I wondered what happened to one of my best friends. You changed, and I was not the biggest fan. Going into college, I really wanted to keep my relationship with you strong so that we could continue to be friends. But there was something noticeable that you had that I didn't. After you kind of pushed me to go to passion, things were crazy. Over that week, God snatched me out of the pit of hell I was sending in and brought me to his son. God used you throughout my life to start something in my heart in a big way. You were one huge tool God used in making me who I am today. I thank you so much for showing me continuous love and patience towards me. I love you, man. Tony. So I open that letter. And I'm reading that phrase. Man, God, God snatched him out of the pit of hell and brought him to his son, Jesus. And I'm sitting there just blown away. And I'm blown away, not from me. Because I, I had no idea. This was all unbeknownst to me that I had this sort of impact on his life. And so I'm sitting there, and I am just 
praising God, thanking God for his faithfulness, that, that while my efforts were weak as a friend and as a Christian, God's grace is far greater than my, pure, my poor efforts. While my efforts are, are terrible, God's grace is more. And, and this is what I was seeing happen because I wasn't great friends. I was not the best friend in the world. He called me a Bible thumper. That's, you know, that's not the best term for most of us. But God's grace is greater than my weaknesses, and that's what God did. God used my life in his life in in an intricate way. All I did was try to leverage some influence that I had in that relationship in order to tell him about Jesus. And this is what Daniel's doing while he's in Babylon. Daniel is leveraging his situation that he's in for the glory of God. Daniel was willing to speak up, and he wasn't afraid. He wasn't held back in fear. He was willing to speak And this takes us to our last point this morning. For all of eternity, for all of eternity, God will be glorified. For all of eternity, God will be glorified. And I phrase this point in a very particular way for a reason. Because this is not a question of of whether God will be glorified. It's not a question. There is no question as to whether God will be glorified. Instead, it is an absolute that God will be glorified. See, see when, this ha- when, when Daniel's life is going through this time in Babylon and, and things are looking dark and things are looking dim and he goes back to King Nebuchadnezzar, he pleads with God for his mercy and he goes back to the king. Look at what Nebuchadnezzar's response was in verse 47. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Church, look at who the hero is at the end of the story. Look at who the hero is at the end of the story. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't go to Daniel and say, you are so smart, you're so awesome, you're the smartest man I've ever met, thank you so much. Instead, he goes and he says, your God is the God of gods. He is Lord of kings. He has revealed this mystery. God is who he is. God will be glorified. As we see in Daniel's story, God will be glorified through what Daniel went through. And I think for us, this should change how we view our lives. This should change how we see everything. Because if we are absolutely certain that God will be glorified, when you and I share the gospel with people, we are not sharing the gospel in vain. If it is an absolute that God will be glorified, what do we have to be afraid of? We have to fear because I know what's in the end of the book. I know that Christ's church will win. I know that God will be saving people as the gospel message goes out. Church, we have nothing to be afraid of. We have nothing to fear. And people might not love us. People might not respect us anymore if we share that message. But we have nothing to fear because our approval is from him. And we know he will be glorified. And that is our goal. Our goal is to glorify God. Glorify God. And that's where we are, church. Our efforts will not be in vain. Everything we do for the sake of him will be for his glory. We can be absolutely confident who he is. God's going to be taking, he's going to be taking sinners like me, and he's going to be taking sinners like you, and he's going to transform their lives into worshipers of him. He's going to take people who, who were far from him and raise them up to be people who are going to make much of his name. He's going to take a people who are far away, bring them close, and he's going to make much of his name through them. Church, that's where we are. At the end of this message, the last thing I want us to do is to walk out of here and feel confident in and of ourselves. Church, I want us to all understand that we are weak. We are absolutely weak, but God is strong. We are not the heroes. God is the hero. 
We, we don't have it all together, but he does have it all together. And he will use a life like yours. He'll use a life like mine to make much of his name. He, he will equip us. He will give us what we need when we throw ourselves at God's mercy. This is where we are today, church. We have the most spectacular news in the entire universe. And we should never waste that news. I'm going to pray for us. God, thank you so much for, for this group of people in your church. Thank you so much for this morning that we could spend together. And I pray that as we walk out of here today, that we would be encouraged. And we would walk in such a way that we, we are confident in who you are. Not that we are confident in ourselves, but we're confident in you. I pray that as we walk out of here, you would give us courage and boldness like never before. That you would be making much of your name through our lives. God, I pray that we would love you more right now than we did when we walked in the room. I pray that every person will walk out of here in confidence of who you are. We love you so much. We thank you for everything that you've done for us in Jesus, and it's because of him that we're here. Amen. All right, church.